Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome. Hang on. I actually downloaded a drum roll for this. Welcome to episode number 600 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. Woohoo! Thank you for being here. I'm Sarah Wendell, and my guest today is Emily Nagoski. Emily Nagoski is one of my most frequent guests, which is good because she's a lot of fun to talk to. And she's back to talk about her new book, Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. We talk about the genesis for this book, which is in part that writing a book is stressful and hard. And while writing Come As You Are, Emily noticed that her own interest in sex was missing. So she dove headfirst into all the research and realized that people who sustain lasting sexual connections have a few major things in common, which is what this book is all about. Now, I need to make sure that you know, and I will say right before the interview starts what the very specific timestamps are here, but we are going to be talking about, obviously, intimacy, and we're going to have frank discussions of sex and sexual practices But we also talk about threats of violence, intimate partner violence, discussion of intentional weight loss, anti-fat bias, and long COVID. I will give you the timestamps right before the interview starts as to where we talk about intimate partner violence and where we talk about intentional weight loss in case that's something that you need to skip over. I want to make it as easy as possible for you to look after yourself. A very big hello and thank you to our Patreon community. I want to say hello to Katie, who joined us recently, and I want to say hello to Anna S., who I have a compliment for. Anna, your friends think that you are the human personification of warm socks and a blanket fresh from the dryer, the finest desserts, and the best hugs, especially that last one. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge, thank you. You're keeping me going. You're making sure that every episode, including this one, has a transcript, hand compiled by Garlic Knitter. Hey, Garlic Knitter! And you're making every episode accessible to everyone. If you would like to join the Patreon community... Have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at a dollar a month and you get bonus episodes, a truly wonderful Discord community, and a lot of other fun stuff. It would be lovely to have you. And I also want to take a moment to say thank you to you who is listening right now and to everyone who has listened. 600 episodes is a lot of episodes and I had no idea what podcasting would become When we first posted our first episodes back in December of 2008, I had to go look it up. It has been more than 10 years and I have learned a lot about interviewing, about listening, about asking questions, and then the technical stuff like editing and what are the correct terms to Google when the audio software is being weird. So thank you for being here, for being part of the podcast community. Thank you for listening to the show and telling people about it, for reviewing the show on whatever podcast platform you're using for tuning in. I am truly honored to keep you company each week, and I am extremely proud to reach 600 episodes. Thank you. Support for this episode comes from HelloFresh, who wants you to have free breakfast for life, which sounds good. At HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. Now, I've been cooking for myself 
for a long time. And now that I have children that are taller than me, it has been time to pass along the kitchen knowledge to them. HelloFresh has been a great tool for both my ability to relax and not cook one evening and their growing culinary skills. The step-by-step instructions allow my kids to take over dinner prep with confidence and curiosity. They have a really good time and the meals are really interesting and delicious too. There are over 45 dinner options to choose from weekly and even more market add-on items that will suit any lifestyle. We tried the Monterey Jack chicken with roasted potatoes and green beans, which were perfect and we loved how fast it was ready too. We also tried the pork tacos with cabbage slaw and the Thai chili burgers with home fries and both of my tall children are still talking about how good they were, especially the tacos. Okay, now I'm hungry, darn it. But I have good news. There is a special offer going on right now. HelloFresh is giving all subscribers free breakfast for life. That means you'll enjoy a totally free breakfast item with every single HelloFresh delivery. Now that's worth waking up early for. Go to HelloFresh.com slash free and use code SMARTTRASHYFREE for free breakfast for life. Do you know how much I love this coupon code? One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash free with code SMARTTRASHYFREE. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. As I mentioned, I have some content warning timestamps. These are mentioned in the conversation, but for your own peace of mind, at 2336, we talk about intimate partner violence, and at one hour and 45 seconds, we talk about intentional weight loss and long COVID. On with the podcast. I am Emily Nagoski. I am a sex educator and the author of Come As You Are. The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, which is about the science of women's sexual well-being. Burnout, co-authored with my twin sister, which is about uh, stress management in the context of the patriarchy. And uh, my new book coming out very soon is Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. Happy new book. Now, when I think you might be, my husband and I were debating this when we were walking the dog this morning. I think you might be my most frequent guest, the person who's, I mean, with the exception of Amanda, who co-hosts with me a lot. I think you might be the guest who's appeared the most. You're like a, like a five-time Wait. SNL host. Yeah. I know that when we last spoke about a year ago, you were talking about this book. I, I think it's so cool to come back and revisit. I cannot shut up about this book. No, it's more like you did it. It's done and other people get to read it now. What will people find inside a book called Come Together? It's a Beatles biography, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The thing I do is I name my books after book titles. That's apparently what I do. Yeah. Um, so the origin story here is that writing Come As You Are, my first book, uh, was pretty. writing a book is hard, as you know. Uh, it was, in fact, so stressful that even though I was writing a book about sex, the stress of it made my interest in actually having any sex completely vanish, like z- zero. Yeah. Months at a time. Uh, and uh, and then I went on book tour and I talked to anyone who would listen about the science of women's sexual well-being. It was so exciting, talking about sex all the time. And I would get home from the travel and I would try to follow my own advice. I'd, you know, schedule sex and I'd put my body in the bed, let my skin touch my partner's skin. And what's supposed to happen next is my body's supposed to wake up and go, oh, I like this. I like this person. This is such a good idea. And instead, I was so stressed and exhausted, I would fall asleep and then cry. Oh, that's... Sometimes in the other direction. That's that's not optimal. That's not where you wanted to go there. Yeah. So 
clearly my own book had not answered the questions that I had about sex in a long-term relationship. So I did what anyone would do. I went to the peer-reviewed research of course. on uh, how couples sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. And what I found there, first of all, totally different from everything everything in the mainstream cultural narrative about what sex and long-term relationships looks like. Second, shockingly doable, shockingly simple and straightforward if people were willing to consider the possibility that talking about sex with the person you have sex with is not a sign that something is wrong, but in fact a sign that something is right. Oh, for sure. You have to be able to have intimate conversations in order to have intimate moments and vice versa, right? You say that. Yes, but it's but not easy to do. A lot of people who are absolutely sure that having to talk about it means there's a problem. If things are fine, then you shouldn't need to talk about it. It turns out in the research, the people who have great sex lives talk about sex all the time. Oh, that I absolutely believe. Right? Yeah. But this mandate to not talk about it unless there's a problem um, that has a whiff of patriarchy. Oh, does it? Does a little, it a, a little, I, I catch a little scent of oppressive patriarchal expectations. It's, it's a little bit of cis heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative, late capitalist, also white supremacist yes. purity culture. Oh, that yes. too. God, what a cake. I really thought that you were yeah. going to say, you know, I'm a sex educator. And I looked at my life and said, what the hell? And I looked for the peer review research and there wasn't any. Like, I really expected there to be none research here. And I'm really glad to know that there, there is a little. Some. Some. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's problems with the research in this field. What? Um, one is that, I know, I know, more so than, I mean, like, I address problems in the research in, like, every book because I love science. Science to me is like democracy. Yeah. It is the worst way of understanding the world, except maybe for all the other ones. Fair. Uh, science is so powerful and it has really profound limits. And the main limit of science is that it is done by people. Even sex scientists are not required to examine and dismantle their pre-existing assumptions about who's supposed to have sex and what sex is supposed to look like. Before they start doing the research. And so there's there's a lot of white supremacy. There's a lot of fat phobia. There's oh. a lot of ableism in the research. Open relationships and monogamous relationships are studied separately yeah. as if the biology of human attachment and love is different depending on the type of relationship you're in. Spoiler, it's not. No. So I had to, there was, there was a lot of bad stuff that I had to sort through to find the really good stuff, but there is some really amazing, amazing research. Can I talk about, I know we're, we're going to talk about like the actual like, but how to? People are like, but how do I sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term, Emily? Can I first talk about two researchers whose work I have really depended on? Like you even have to ask that question. Just <laughs> uh, please tell me all about it because this is the thing that I'm not good at. I am not good at taking a wide variety of data and synthesizing it into a, a like that's not a thing my brain can do. I get over uh, too overwhelmed. I cannot do that. So the fact that you can is already fascinating. It's my brain's favorite thing. <laughs> okay, please tell me everything. So, uh, 
The first author has actually written a book that people can read. It's called Magnificent Sex. This is a book that I've been recommending ever since it was published by Peggy Kleinplatz and A. Dana Maynard, M.E. with an accent aigu, N-A-R-D, Dana Maynard, Magnificent Sex. Gorgeous title, right? Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers? Hell yeah. Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. It's on the academic side, but it's... Uh, This work is so good. So what Peggy and her team did was interview dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex, as having optimal sexual experiences. So the first thing I want to ask you is, what do you suppose is the typical age at which a person has their first extraordinary or optimal sexual experience? Are we breaking this down? Typical first age. Are we are we just talking about all people? Or are we talking about people who identify as men and people who identify as women? Because I imagine all those, people, all people. people, it's not different by gender. Okay, all people, magnificent sex. I'm going to say somewhere in their 40s, 55. Damn, I'm not even there yet. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, what that means is that like about half of people, it's sometime before that, and about half people, it's sometime after that. On the one hand. Like, wow, they went all those years having sex that was not optimal, but also like they got there. They did not let anything stop them. Yes, that is very good point. That's a very glass half empty, glass half full way of looking at this. Yeah. And also for anybody who thinks that it's too late. Not too late. Not too late. Not even, not even a little bit. Nope. Uh, so, so Peggy, identi- Peggy and her team, uh, interviewed dozens of people of all different ages, uh, different genders, different sexual orientations, different kinky versus vanilla, open versus uh, monogamous, all relationship structures. This is some of the most inclusive research. One of the reasons it's so good is that it's inclusive. People of different neurotypes, just a really diverse population of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex. Mm-hmm. And uh, first, she has a list of eight characteristics of what extraordinary sex is. Uh you might be surprised to learn that a characteristic that is not on the list of what extraordinary sex is like, like it didn't make the top 10 characteristics, is desire. Oh. Like being horny. Not on the list. Wow. It's it's on the list. But you know how they do like extended New York Times bestseller lists where there's a 10 and then the extended list is 15? Yeah. Desire's on the extended list. Oh, my. Yeah. So that's our first clue that everything we imagine about sex and long-term relationships is not actually how great sex and long-term relationships works. Oh, that's fascinating. So they say things like vulnerability and authenticity and creativity and play and connection, right? Like those are things where you're like, oh, and pleasure, obviously. And, and you kind of want to know, how did they get there? And I will talk about that because it is one of the three characteristics of couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. So Peggy's research on optimal sexual experiences, spectacular. And there's a book about it, which I love. The second researcher has not yet, to my knowledge, written a book that people can just buy. So you got to go to the peer-reviewed research. Her name is Shamika Thorpe, and she studies the sexual pleasure of Black women in the South. And she uses this metaphor of pleasure mountain mount pleasure 
of like the steps that her research participants take in order to create a context that lets them access pleasure despite living in a world that has absolutely tried to convince them that pleasure does not belong to them. Oh, wow. H-O-R-P-E, Thorpe with an E. I will link to this in the show notes. She's great to follow on Instagram too. Oh, wow. Okay, so I will link to this in the show notes, but her website is Dr. Shamika, S-H-E-M-E-K-A. And there is a reading list of Black sexuality, feminism, and pleasure. Oh, wow, this is amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah. Holy cow. So these are two research labs that transformed my work uh, that were central because of the quality and inclusiveness of the populations that were studied. It wasn't just like white cisgender heterosexuals. Yeah. Which is most of what you find. Well, I mean, it is a very overreported cohort. Yeah. And college students, right? Oh, well, yes. But, you know. That really is the the image of teenagers and and of college students that they just they just think with their uh with think think with think with, think with their libidos all of the time, and it is incredible to see a, a researcher looking at other populations that don't really even get connected to the concept of pleasure. I mean, exactly. we already have these weird... are not the people nope. whom you assume like we we sort of have this idea and. I mean, we have a script in our head of what like normal sex or good sex or even perfect sex looks like. And that includes an image of like what people are doing, who those people are, what their bodies look like, what their bodies are capable of, Mm -hmm. their age, their shape, their genders. Yep. Now, in our last conversation, back when we were talking uh, about the very beginning stages of writing this book, You talk about identifying the sex that you do not want to help identify the sex that you do want. And that's like all of chapter one. And one thing I I love so much is the watching someone go through the process of reframing a thing that we know is is an issue, that we know is something to talk about, but completely renovating how we talk about it. Mm -hmm. So starting with the idea of, well... I'm not enjoying the sex that I'm having. So the problem must be me. I must not like sex. I must not enjoy it to moving that conversation to, I don't like the sex that I'm having and I might like some other sex, but I don't know what that is. That's a massive reframing job. And you tackle that in chapter one. I, I think it is the foundation of the whole thing. And it's not just changing from sex I do not want. It is transitioning away. So... I ask people to consider the question, what is it that I want when right. I want sex? Of course. Right. And also, what is it that I don't want when I don't want sex? What do you want when you want sex with a partner? Uh, hint, it's not orgasm. You can probably do that on your own. Um, and if you can't do that on your own, there's whole books about that. So, so what is it that you want when you want sex with a partner? And when you don't want sex, what is it that you don't want? It's not orgasm. What is it? When people have that as a conversational starting point, it it gets very feelings very fast. Oh, yes. When people have an idea of like, I want connect, and the like, I I have asked thousands of people this question, and they talk about they want connection, they want to feel desired and desirable, they want to share pleasure, like 
pleasure, you don't just want the pleasure of like rubbing your body parts on someone else's body parts. You want the pleasure of sharing the sensation of your body parts on their body parts and their pleasure in the sensation of their body parts on your body parts. That is a specific and special delightful thing is the sharing of pleasure. And people want this experience that I have started calling freedom of like being able to close the door on all the other stressful stuff in our lives and just be able to disappear into the sensations of the pleasurable things that our bodies can do. Mm -hmm. That's that's just some of the things that people really want. People want their identity validated. They want to feel accepted and acceptable, that these parts of themselves that they were taught their whole lives are dirty, dangerous, and disgusting are, in fact, desirable and wantable and lovable, mm -hmm. not just acceptable, but yeah. like, wow. So people want a lot of things. And when people have conversations about what they want, that is a much more productive conversation than like, why aren't we having sex? Yeah. And, but for me, the transition that you get to, and so I'll tell you, it's from Peggy's research uh, that this originally started in my mind she would have a couple come in and partner a says i'm sorry this makes my partner upset but honestly i'd be happy if we never had sex again and Ouch. peggy says okay so tell me about this sex you do not want yeah like what an important question that is and they do not go on to describe like ecstatic pleasurable joyful connected authentic emotional vulnerable playful anything it is in peggy's words dismal and disappointing yeah uh and her response is well you know i rather like sex but if that's the sex i were having i wouldn't want it either Ooh, this boy. is this is the the wild revelation that is completely obvious when you say it out loud yeah it is not dysfunctional it is not a problem if you do not want sex you do not like that makes total sense. Right. And yet think of all of the narratives in, in other realms that counter the idea. Well, if someone serves you a food you don't like, you have to eat it anyway or it's rude. If someone gives you something you don't like, you have to act like you do and say thank you and then like act and make sure that you perform using whatever this thing is that you don't actually want. You mm -hmm. have to sublimate your wants for the comfort of someone else. And that's not just sex. It's food and gifts and expectations and parenting. And like it's all of these different family relationships. It's all of these yeah. different subtle messages where, well, if the foundational one about sex is not going to be any different. Yeah. And yet. And yet, can can we make it different? I like, hope I so. I can't change the whole world, but going to a friend's house and eating the food they make, even though you don't find it delicious, is doesn't have the same impact on your body as going home with your spouse of two decades and having sex again, where they get to put a part of their body maybe inside a part of your body or... Yeah. And you, you're you're just doing it and being polite. Yeah, that's a completely different set of experiences on both sides yeah. of that. Yeah, absolutely. So while I recognize that, like, it's not easy, and we have all been taught to be so polite, yes, and to just grease the wheels of social interactions and make sure that people just get along. What if this is a crazy idea? What if we all only ever had sex we like? 
And it gets crazier. It gets wacky. Yep. It's bananas. Yep. What if, what if we didn't feel bad about oh. not having the sex we don't like? Oh. What if that were just okay? What if it's okay to just prioritize our own pleasure physically and emotionally? What? That's yes. Madness. And, and you can even do it in like a long-term relationship. Yeah. Because you can have a conversation with your partner about what what you like and what you don't like and what they like and what they don't like and yep. what you want and what they want. And not being able to do that and feeling the possibility um content warning for violence, feeling the possibility of violent retribution for bringing it up. Yes. Is a very real concern for so many people because it's like, like you were just saying, it is such a elemental foundational human um, experience, intimacy and vulnerability, knowing that addressing a problem with sex means the potential of violence means that you're not ever going to do it. The question I'm asked most often is some version of, am I normal? This thing, is this normal in my life? I have this fantasy. Is that normal? I yeah. have this desire. Is that normal? I have this experience. Is that normal? Uh, and maybe right after that is, how do I talk to my partner about? Yeah. How do I ask my partner about? Yeah. And like the the straightforward answer is, like you say the words, like you just said it to me. I want to talk to you about whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So the real question isn't how do I talk to my partner about it's what is it that I dread will happen if I talk about it? Because even if it's a person who you have sex with, we still somehow have this fear that they are going to judge us and respond negatively or or equally we are worried that they're going to receive that conversation as criticism or judgment of them and we are all so so fragile so oh, yeah. delicate around our sexuality because we've been taught that our worth as human beings can be measured by our success as sexual people and of course success is something that has been defined by somebody else somebody has told us their opinion of what success looks like and we think that we're supposed to try to match somebody else's opinion of what success looks like mm-hmm. and by even talking about it, we are already failing at that somebody else's definition. Yeah. It's a lot of baggage in the bedroom. Oh, man. So much. But, but, so, the hopeful part is characteristics of couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term. Yes. Characteristic number one. Yes. They are friends. Yes. Who pri- they, are, they have trust and admire each other. Yes. You say that. When I was writing the admiration section of the book, it was quite controversial. Because I wrote something about how, like, so admiration is, like, when I hear the garage door open and I know that my partner is coming home, I feel a little flutter of joy inside me that this person I am so lucky to have as my partner is here. Yeah. And early readers were like, that's that's too aspirational. That's not realistic. And I was like, that's literally just a thing that happened to me today that I wrote down. Oh my gosh, I'm really, I'm really worried about people. Um, and so as I was writing it, Terrence Reel's book, Normal Marital, this idea of normal marital hatred yes. got written about everywhere. And I was like, oh, that. People- 
are letting this thing of just like their irritation and annoyance with the things that were like cute early on in a relationship escalate into like this person, like the the garage door opening and their partner coming home is not about like the the things they're so grateful for, the things they really admire about their partner, but like the irritations they have about like their partner leaving like food containers in the sink instead of putting it in the recycling. Yeah. Like, why didn't you just like that, all that stuff? And like, this is, a, they were late. This is the, their, the garage door's opening, but they're late again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so working on the admiration piece makes it easier to have sex that you like. It makes it easier to talk about sex in a way that is free of shame yes. and guilt and blame. Yes. So I'm not going to say that it is necessarily easy to sustain a consistent level of admiration. No. But when you feel that admiration missing in your relationship, that's a target to work on before you try to do work on the sex stuff. Mm -hmm. yep. Characteristic number one. Yep. Um, characteristic number two, they prioritize sex. Yes. They, they decide that it matters for their relationship. And let's just be clear, it does not matter for everyone. It does not matter for all relationships. It does not matter all the time within any given relationship. There are phases and seasons when sex drops off the priority list. Ahem, the first four years of having a new human in your house. <laughs> Like, just, like it just it just doesn't have to be on the priority list. But the couples who sustain a strong sexual connections are the ones who decide that it matters, that it does something valuable for their relationship, that they stop doing all the other things they could be like. You got kids to raise, maybe you got a job to go to, school to finish, copy to house train. Yeah, you like you've got you've got other friends to pay attention to. Why would we? pause all that other stuff and just like put our bodies in the bed and suck each other's toes and lick each other's genitals like why would why would we do that people make a choice they decide that it really matters for their relationship and for themselves that this is part of their connection with this person that they're choosing to spend a lot of years with and they're going to make the choice to deliberately try to shut all of that other stuff out, which is really hard, to turn off yeah. all of those other obligations to focus on themselves and the pleasure that they experience with their partners. Yeah. And because it's a priority, they are choosing it. Yeah. Not out of a sense of like obligation that yeah. they have to. Obligation is one of the most consistent things people say that they do not want or like. Which is when they do not want or like sex. Tricky because scheduling sex can often feel like making it obligatory. And that's, yeah. that can be a very tricky balance for certain people's perception of their time schedule and priority list. Are you familiar with the term pathological demand avoidance? I am, yes. Pathological demand yeah. avoidance? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, characteristic of uh, neurodivergent people in particular, yeah. especially maybe folks with ADHD. Uh, I'm married to one. Uh, it's where like the fact of feeling like you're supposed to, or like it's on your calendar, or like it's something you should be doing, inherently makes you not want to do it and resent it and less likely to do it. Yep. So people do tremendously vary. And even without that, if, you know, you are a person who schedules sex, but like lately you've been in a place of conflict with your partner or work has just been incredibly overwhelming. And that 
event in your calendar is just looking like another fucking responsibility. Right. Something else you have to do for somebody else. Energy that I have to expend. Yeah. 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 Then don't schedule sex because it's not going to work for you. Yeah. I am. I'm an advocate most of for a lot of people. Um, the people scheduling works for are the people whose brains are slow to transition from one state to another. Yeah. And like you've got multiple children. You've probably noticed that this is a temperamental trait where people vary in how easily they transition from one task to another. Yes. Absolutely. Like some true. people need a they need to know when it's going to happen in advance. They need a plan for the transition and they need it costs time and mental energy. Like it's actually expensive in computer programming. They call it context switching cost. Yes. It's why multitasking doesn't actually work. It does it's not. Be- because you're doing one thing. And then it's you don't just like do another thing. There's a chunk that happens in your brain of transitioning to the other thing, which expends a bunch of energy and attention. And then chunk, you go back to the other thing. Yeah. And then chunk. And that is making you less able to invest your time and energy in the actual tasks. Yes. Because you're spending so much on the transition. Yeah. Transitioning into a sexy state of mind is a context switch. Yeah. And for some people, the cost of that switch, the amount of time and energy that it takes is higher than it is for other people. Those are the folks who benefit from scheduling it, knowing when it's going to be, making sure they have a plan for what helps them transition out of whatever state of mind they're going to be in before it starts Mm -hmm. into whatever it is. For me, it's baths. I'll be honest. Like I know people make fun of the idea of baths of self-care, but there is something about a tub of like tits deep hot water that just like helps me transition out of anywhere into the place I want to go emotionally. Yeah. Uh, for my sister, who's a professional musician, married to a professional musician, it is hearing her partner practice piano. Yep. That's never going to be it for me because I'm not a musician and neither is my husband. Yep. Everybody has a different thing that helps them transition. So the people who are slower to transition are the people who... uh will most benefit from having a plan. I talked to someone yesterday who read about this and talked to her partner. She was like, you know, it's the end of the day. The kids are finally in bed. I get in bed with the iPad and I've already started watching The Golden Bachelor. And my partner comes in and was like, hey, hey, do you want to? I'm like, it's not that I don't want to say yes. It's that I'm already doing this. Yeah. Like I have already started on another task. And I just think about the effort it would take to draw my brain away from this thing I'm already attending to and shift into this other state of mind. So they had a conversation about this. It's like, it's not that I want to say no, it's that uh, it takes effort. Uh, And he said, well, what about if I just ask when would be a good time instead of, hey, do you want to? And she was, that's such a better question. Oh, These are simple communication changes that people can make. Yeah. Just adapting to the reality of having a human brain. Yeah. And also recognizing that the choice to engage in sexual intimacy is an expenditure of energy. Mm-hmm. But not only is it the choice to change focus an expenditure of energy, but sometimes coming up with the energy for intimacy is a real challenge at the end of the day. And it's oh, and, yeah. and the energy required to watch The Golden Bachelor versus the energy to have a pleasurable sexual experience. Those are two def, different different loads of energy right there. 
Oh yeah. Um, so so we talked about the couple where one partner doesn't want to have sex ever again. They yeah, because the that. sex that they and are having is not great for their for them. Is, of course they don't want it. They don't like it. And so Peggy's question then is, so what kind of sex is worth wanting? Yeah. So that's one kind of couple who can struggle with uh, low sexual desire, low sexual frequency. And then there's couples like me when I was writing Come As You Are, where like, I know the sex would be so great. If only I could get there. Yeah. Right? Like, but I, I can't. I just, I have lost the ability to can. I can't. That's what I needed a solution to. Why? When I put my body in the bed and I let my skin touch my partner's skin, does my body not light up? Why does, do I cry instead? with fatigue and overwhelm. Um, and it's, I was just stuck. I felt stuck and I had to figure out if I'm stuck, where am I stuck? Right. What's and happening? How do I get out? Yeah. <laughs> and how do I get from here to the place I want to be, which is the sexy state of mind? Uh, so again, I did what anyone would do. I turned to the father of affective neuroscience, Yak Panksep. As you do. Uh, and as, as anyone would do, I have a very normal brain and a very ordinary life. Yeah, for sure. He writes of seven primary process emotions. One of them is lust. So these are seven core mammalian brain emotional systems or motivational systems. And lust is the one where courtship and sexual contact happen. And I wanted, I wanted to get there. I wanted to get in the lust space in my brain. So if I couldn't get there, where was I? I was in the fear space. In my brain, I was stressed and anxious and overwhelmed, and I would get in the bed, and it doesn't matter how much I love my partner, how attracted I am to him, I'm stuck in the fear space. And until I get out of that space, nothing is going to happen. No. So by being able to recognize, like, these are the skills, recognize what space am I in emotionally? Yeah. How do I get out? And then the hard part is, where do I end up? Because you, the like, here's the tricky part. There is no doorway directly out of fear into lust. No, they don't live next door. So when you, when you think about times that you're really, really stressed and you manage like very effectively to get out of a stress, like fear state of mind, where do you find yourself? Like what sort of situation are you in? What emotions are you having? I honestly don't know. I would really have to sit and think about it because I don't, yeah, I don't label the next one. I'm just glad I'm out of that first one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is why it was complicated and why it required the father of affectic neuroscience. Cause I, th- I thought about it and I was like, well, so I go to like rest and repair recovery for my body. And then I go to seeking, which is another one of the primary process emotions. So this is curiosity and exploration and adventure. It's intellectual curiosity for me very often. Um, for some people, it's actual like adventure out in the great wide somewhere. It's, mm-hmm. I have friends who sold all their stuff and traveled around the world. Just sounds like a nightmare to me, but they loved it. Stuff went wrong all the time. Yep. And they got to collaborate together on like dealing with like the lost passport and the canceled flight and all the things that went wrong. And it felt very bonding for them to have that adventure in the seeking space because they didn't deal with it as like, 
oh, what a hassle. I can't, oh, can't believe we're dealing with this. They were like, oh, we're going to do this together. Yep. We're going to have this adventure together. Yep. And it was great for them. And they have the babies to prove it. <laughs> so for some people, seeking is like cooking, like curious, like what's a new recipe I can do? It feels like an adventure to explore new flavors. For some people, it's going to an art museum or to a lecture the curiosity seeking space for me has a doorway directly into lust. So if I can get out of fear, I take care of my body. I get, I, I find myself in my seeking space of being curious and exploring. And this was very easy when I was in grad school. Cause when I was in grad school, I dated other grad students. Oh, wow. And we would talk about each other's research. Yeah. And that's, there's a slip and slide from. Affective neuroscience conversations right into the lust space for me because I have a very ordinary brain. <laughs> but suppose you find yourself in another space, the play space, which is the uh, biological motivational system of friendship. Yeah. Where you engage in behaviors be for, the, for their own sake. Yeah. Not to any end. Yeah. Because everybody involved likes it. Yeah. And there's nothing at stake. Yes. And it's not clouded with judgment and negativity. Right. It is just open. Totally free of judgment. It yeah. is just, I mean, like I think of my dogs when I think of the play space, that play bell of like, hey, that like softness and openness, which is an invitation that like, if if anything hurts, like that was an accident, I mean, no harm. Yep. Oops. Oops. And then you, and then you move past it. So the play space, when I was talking to people, early readers, and as I started teaching this idea of what I'm going to call the emotional floor plan, yeah. because it's about mapping, like, how do I get from one place to another yes. in my own emotional landscape? Yes. Right. Um, it, the play space turns out to be the one that surprises people as being really important as having a doorway into the lust space. Sex on vacation. Why do so many people so successfully connect with their partner on vacation when it's difficult for them at other times? You have eliminated all the stuff you're worried about and you can just play. There's nothing at stake. You can release all the worries and concerns and yep. identities that you need to hold on to in your day-to-day yep. -day life yep. and just uh, just play. So the play space for a lot of people turns out to be really important, and it's one people don't think about very often. And that's yeah. another space that, for me, has a doorway. Like, if I can get to the play space, yeah. and again, there's no door from fear into play. No, you have to navigate. I have to get to some place. I have to get through the fear space. I have to, like, process the stress, see all the other times that I have ever talked to you about completing the stress response cycle. Yes, and let me tell you, tits deep hot water. Give me a hot bath. Like that is one of the things that really does it for me. Let me cry for 15 minutes. Yep. Take a hot bath. Yep. Listen to a very sexy audiobook, and I am ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to ask you about books, but I also want to ask you before we move to that topic, um, I wanted to ask you about one of the elements of sustaining a strong sexual connection is uprooting the gender binary from your psyche. Yeah, right. Third characteristic of couples who sustain a strong sexual connection. One was that they have a strong friendship at the foundation of their relationship. Yep. Two is that they uh, prioritize sex. It matters to them. Mm -hmm. And so they talk about it and they maybe put it in their calendar and it matters to them that they do it. And so they put in effort. Three, they 
reject all of other people's opinions about who they're supposed to be as sexual people. Yes. In order to create space for who they truly are, each of them individually as a sexy person and together as a partnership. And that includes all of the lies we have been fed since before we were born about who we are as gendered people, all the rules and regulations about who you're supposed to like and how you're supposed to express emotion and which emotions you're allowed to express and what sex means to you based on nothing more important than like the organization of your genital structures. Yeah. It's it's all it's all like a big freaking lie. It's all nonsense. And it's all of it. And all of it is just obstructing your access to greater and greater pleasure in your life. Mm-hmm. And I will be totally honest, this isn't easy for anyone, even folks who are trans and non-binary, even in people who are not in heterosexual relationships, even people who've already done a bunch of work around this stuff. It is buried so deep. It got its roots in so early in our lives that you're going to keep finding it over and over and over again. Yeah. But when you engage in this practice of like debinarying your own psychology and your relationship the reward is that is the doorway to the kind of sex that turns the universe into rainbows yeah i'm going to say worth it yeah i i hope it so is, <laughs> yeah it's not easy no and i'm like i'm not going to lie to people and be like just just dismantle the patriarchy in your relationships. Just a cake. Yeah, just to remove all of the gender binary language that you've ever heard in your life of several decades about how you should be as a person who identifies as X. Yeah. All the assumptions you have that somebody else put in your brain about what your partner is supposed to do and say yeah. and how they're supposed to act yeah. and what their role is in your erotic connection. What if... All those assumptions, you just you start from scratch. Yep. And there's also just very simple, pragmatic steps you can take. Like if your bedroom is reinforcing feelings and ideas about who you used to believe you're supposed to be as a sexual person, mm-hmm. get rid of that shit. Yeah. Get Change your bedroom. Paint is amazing. Paint is amazing. Part of uh, our process was just noticing, um, so we generally keep the door to the bedroom open because the dogs like to be able to get to the bedroom. Um, but we, we don't necessarily want the dogs in the bedroom during the sexy time. So we close the bedroom door then. And it used to be that we had this little chest that propped the door open, which wouldn't stay open on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so closing the door meant moving this heavy little chest and then pulling up a lot of the big corner of a carpet so that the door would close. That's too many and obstacles. It was it was just too many steps. There too was, many obstacles. So we got rid of the rug and we replaced the little trunk with a tiny trash can. Victory! Right? Yeah. We we live in New England. It gets cold in the winter at night. Uh-huh. And nobody wants to get out of bed to go get a towel. And, you know, sometimes there's fluids. Involved it can be a little messy sex. sometimes, yes. So you so there's wiping involved. Yes, of course. Got to have a sex towel. So you put the sex towel in your bedside table. Don't keep them in the bathroom. Just just put them right there so nobody has to get out of bed. 
in order to do the wiping, in order to manage the wet spot. Yeah. Just just have them right there. There's simple, easy things you can do. If having like a lot of clutter on your nightstand or bedside table feels like a distraction and a to-do list, just move it somewhere else. Yeah. But get rid of it. And that, again, is a form of prioritizing sex because you're visually prioritizing your comfort. If you keep your clothes in your bedroom and there are clothes that say mean things to you about your body, Uh you can keep your clothes anywhere you want. Don't keep them in the bedroom. They don't belong in there. Only clothes that have nice things to say about your body belong in the bedroom. Yeah. That's why they're pajamas. That's right. That's right. Now, one aspect about this book, one of my one of my brain's favorite things to do is to see so much of what I learn about in the world through the lens of romance. What is the romance yeah. genre saying about this? How does the romance genre portray this? Because, I mean, romance, as we've discussed, is about ent- empathy and intimacy and a lot of very vulnerable things, like feelings, so annoying feelings. If you're looking at this particular subject through the lens of romance, it's really wild to recognize some of the aspect of romance that are incredibly sex positive and incredibly empowering and incredibly human and humane. Especially over the last 20 years. Oh, boy. Oh boy. Yes. And there are some that are not because romance, I went, when I got to the part where you were talking about sexual imperatives and you listed mm-hmm. sexual imperatives as coital imperatives, variety imperative, performance, confidence, the the sex imperative itself, like you are a sexual person who has sex. You that's all all of those right. imperatives are so baked into romance narratives of sex. Like when I started writing about the genre, I realized just about every single sex scene I read was from the POV of the heroine, even if it was a heterosexual romance and the hero had point of view chapters. The sex was never from his point of view. It was always hers. Mm. Mm. And I was like, but why? Why? Why does it need to be from her point of view? Why is that Why is that so interesting? And so when I finally read a sex scene from a male point of view, I was like, whoa, this is wild. Is this really what happens? <laughs> like, even the point of view comes with an imperative. And I'm wondering how you look at romance being so very fluent in all of this research and all of these concepts of, you know, emotional hierarchy and sexuality, how do you look at romance as both the empowering and the limiting portrayals of sex? So the nature of a romance novel is to be about very, not always, but very often about the early fallen in love, hot and heavy part of a relationship. Yeah, the courtship part, yeah. What we assume happily ever after looks like is that sustaining forever. Right, but that's not not how it works, right? It's not how it works, and it's not even how it's supposed to work. Oh, So this is is the thing I call the desire imperative. The idea that, like, early in a relationship, it's hot, heavy, can't wait to, like, get your hands on each other, slightly obsessive even. And that can last for a while. And then like you buy a fixer upper house or you have kids or job stuff and life gets complicated. There's a pandemic, who knows? Uh, And that sort of goes away and you have two choices. It goes away so much that by the time you get past menopause, you're left to like hold hands at sunset on the beach or whatever and that's just it for you. And and there's only two options. Either you accept the disappearance 
of your sex life or you fight to keep the spark alive, keep the spark alive, to keep it the way it was when you first got together, the hot and heavy, fallen in love, can't wait to get our hands on each other. And even the keep the spark alive language implies that it will die unless you do something. Right. If I could eradicate one phrase from the English language, it would be keep the spark alive. Yeah, I can see why. Or reignite the spark. Because the deal is desire is not what matters. And I understand why novels are all about desire because Mm -hmm. it's a story where characters are pursuing a goal. I get it. Desire is what drives narratives. But pleasure is what drives eroticism. Pleasure is what drives sex. Desire is such a big thing. And in real life, you want the stakes to be low. You want there to be nothing at stake. You want it to be pleasure for its own sake because you both like it. So, on the one hand, I get the hot and heavy fallen in love. I am a reader of romance. I love it. Oh, yeah. And, and let me, it's, it's getting better and better. Um, one of the, obviously, Courtney Milan's new book came out, Autobi, immediate read, read it in one day. Yeah. Uh, the, the Marquis who mustn't. The main character's parents are asexual. She doesn't name it. It's a historical romance. They're not going to name it that, but it's just this like normal. The heroines perceives her parents' relationship as loveless because they don't sleep in the same bed together. And she thinks that passion and eroticism is part of what it has to be in order for it to be love. Right. And she has a talk with her mom about like, yeah, no, we just figured out that like neither of us cared about this thing that everybody told us we were supposed to care about so much. And so we don't sleep in the same bed and we love each other and are supportive partners to each other for all these decades. Yeah. And like that doesn't have to be part of what it means for us to to love each other like crazy. Yeah. I think I met you at an RWA right before Come As You Are came out. Um, It was 2015, like a month after Come As You Are came out or something. Yeah. So 2015, we're almost 10 years later. It's almost been 10 mm-hmm. years. Imagine going back to that time in romance and having asexual heroines, asexual characters even. It was just not even a thing that people were thinking of then. I love how much the genre can change and how quickly it can change. So back in 2020, uh, Rachelaine Maltese said that romance has a liberation wing, which is where protagonists will bend the world to find their joy, and a compliance wing where characters bend themselves to find their joy. And romance Mm. operates with both, right? But it's so true, right? It's so mm-hmm. true. There are there are both. Yeah. And I can think of 30 examples of both in tel- 10 seconds. It's not a problem. I'm noticing how strongly I'm reacting to like, there's only one of those that I like. Yes, there's only one of and those that I enjoy. Like, I notice like a sense of like, oh no, oh no, oh no, when a story looks like it's going to go compliance. Yeah. And instead it goes like, bend the world. And one one writer who's really good at that, I think, is Nalini Singh, because especially in her worlds, her worlds have rules. 
There are rules to how things happen. And you think, oh, she's going to either have to break the rules of the world to make this ending work or break the character's core to make this work. Yeah. And then there's a third option that you do not see coming that yeah. that is liberative, 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 liberational of both. And it's like, oh, yeah. Nalini, you devil. Like, yeah. There are so many ways in which romance remains compliant to sexual imperatives and reinforces mm-hmm. heteronormative patriarchal purity culture. There's a lot of that. There's still a lot of purity culture, even when you think it's not. It's there. It's everywhere. But then you also have so many romances that are liberating the idea that there's only one kind of sex and there's only one kind of sexuality, which is very, very inspirational. And it's interesting to see when you when you have names for the imperatives, where they are, where you can spot them, right? Yeah. One of my my favorites is the performance inher- imperative. Uh, yeah. So these come from a book that is about sex messages in the media. And applying these to romance novels is exactly what I was doing while I was reading this book. Uh, and my favorite one is the performance imperative, which they describe as an ambitious employee working hard to pursue a promotion. So like you work, you put work into being a better sex person. Yeah. Because you want to be like a champion. You like dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Like somewhere there's an app and you want five stars. Right. Like you're trying to get the fives. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like the interpretation of that in the context of the gig economy that like with every sexual encounter, you want to make sure you're a five star lover every single time. And like the amount of performance inherent and like, I'm going to like make sure this person has a super experience. Whenever I read of like heroes who are just like so good in bed. Yeah. Like he's really good in bed. She's really like she's a master of everything in bed. That is that's not a thing in real life. That's not real. Great sex comes from paying attention to the specific individual that you are with. And if you possibly can manage it, paying really close attention to their pleasure while also simultaneously paying attention to your own pleasure. Yeah. And that's not like a skill, like a skilled lover. That's that's not what authors often mean when they talk about a skilled lover. They mean somebody who does good things with their dick, usually. Yes, they know where the clitoris is. And the thing that Which, always... not bad. Not bad. I'm in favor of it. I am in favor of, of, of the locational skills thereof. But everyone's clitoris is going to react to a different approach. And the same approach mm-hmm. is not going to work for every single person. And so it's like, okay, so he knows where it is and he knows what it does, but that doesn't mean he knows how this one works. Yeah, yeah. As porn star Nina Hartley puts it, the clitoris is not a doorbell. <laughs> no. <laughs> what is this book that you mentioned that talks about the sexual imperatives? Uh, Mediated Intimacy by three authors. All of whose names I'm not going to remember. That's fine. I write. I I put them in the show notes. Like I have links to all of these books because I promise people are going to be like, I, "What was the name of that book? I wish to read that book immediately." One other thing, me, if me. you have if you have time, when you talked about savoring all pleasure, yes, as a catalyst to sexual pleasure, that savoring pleasure also counters very much this idea that we have to grind and work and rush and we have to hurry and we have to not savor anything. We have to get to the next thing. And it Mm -hmm. seems like a lot of this is also an anti-grind culture argument 
that the idea of of pursuing pleasure and pursuing prioritizing your pleasure and the pleasure of your partner is very much anti-grind culture. I assume that was uh, a very, very happy byproduct of your work, generally speaking. You look so coy right now. <laughs> so who, me? You've been around the publishing industry for a while now, right? Oh, Oh, yes. I joke often that I I have a rocking chair on the front porch of Romance Old Folks Home. So you know that a publisher's primary goal with a book is to like earn out the advance. Oh, for like, sure. Probably. Yes. So I need you not to say out until that happens. Please don't say out loud that my book is anti-capitalist. Oh, of course not. But not a, it's not a byproduct. It is an explicit, deliberate intention in the book. Fuck Yeah. <laughs> We want so a one different of, kind of grinding, people. It's a different <laughs> kind of grinding that we're after yeah. here. One of the oh, most no. important books I read last year was Rest is Resistance by Atricia Hersey, the Nat Bishop. Love that book. Love it. Love, love that book. Love following the Nat mystery on all the social medias. I first encountered Trisha Hersey's work uh, when I was still in promoting come as you are mode in 2016 we happened to be at the same conference i was already working on burnout i had already <laughs> written the sleep chapter and i saw trisha hersey speak and i was like oh fuck i have had a very shallow analysis i'm gonna have to start that from scratch oh uh, bother totally transformed my that chapter and then it transformed my work. Yeah. And then gradually, eventually, through what she calls the unraveling, it has changed my life. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have feelings now. A choice I made in 2015. A uh, trigger warning for talking about intentional weight loss. Heads up. Because 30 seconds of that. Uh, it's a choice that I made in 2015 because I could, and I knew that the closer I could come to the culturally constructed aspirational ideal, the more seriously I would be taken as an expert. And it worked. I remember you talking about this before your TED Talk, that you yeah. were conscious of yourself on camera and that you needed to conform to a particular visual to be listened to and how fucking terrible that was, but also entirely rational choice. Right? Yes. Um. And man, to walk into a room and be like, oh, you're the expert, instead of at my body's healthy, natural size being like, oh, oh, you're the expert? Yeah. There's there's a very real difference. And boy, thin privilege is fucking intoxicating. So I had to I had to make a choice, like menopause and then long COVID. Oh, bother. I've had long COVID for about ooh, 15 months now. That um, fucker. Yeah, it sucks. And uh, I had to make a choice about intentional weight loss approaching the book tour. Yeah. And I decided not to. But here's the mental wrangling that it took me. My health was bad when I was engaging in, you know, like any nutritionist or exercise person would have been like, you're doing a good job. And I was like, I almost passed out on a New York City street. Like, it was bad. Uh, and I decided not to do that this to myself this year, not because I prioritized my health, but because my husband was so worried about me mm. back then. And uh, like, this is a whole book about restoring our connection. And I didn't want to do that to him. Yeah. So I made the choice 
to prioritize my health and well-being with whatever opportunity costs that may come with. Yeah. Because my relationship with him is more important than any potential work, anything that could come along that might be contingent on like what dress size I wear. Yeah. Which like it's real. It's that very there are opportunities real. I may lose because I, I there's I can't find clothes at a Nordstrom that fit me, alas. But that's how it is, and I uh, I went ahead and made that choice, and for me, that was inspired by Trisha Hersey's work and the unraveling from grind culture and other people's expectations that my body is a commodity to be consumed. And that your 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 dedication to grinding your body into a smaller size is an indication of your dedication to your life. Right. Yes. Oh, Emily, I've I've given up on myself. Yeah. No. Getting along I'm, with my body for the first time. Totally different thing. Yeah. Better, better than ever before. And I it isn't easy. No. And oh my God, you guys, the liberation. Y'all. Y'all. So beautiful. <laughs> y'all. So I always ask this question. What books are you reading that you wish to tell people about in addition to Magnificent Sex, The Marquis Who Who Mustn't, The Romantic Agenda, and Mediated Intimacy? I have been writing them down. They will be in the show notes. I mean, there's. I've been reading a lot because I've been traveling. So Railed by Uh, the Krampus, yeah. uh, So audiobooks, especially. Leslie Jones's memoir as an audiobook. Oh, the audiobook version specifically because she does not read her audiobook. She sees what the story is and she just tells the fucking story. And it's 16 hours long because she tells the story and she was like, they didn't want me to put this in there, but I'm just going to tell this story. And she tells story of like the last time her father said that he was proud of her. And she's like sobbing heavily in the booth. It is just stunning it is so good all right well i already have jones i already have barbara streisand's 48 hour audio book memoir she reads it it's 48 hours i have been told that it is for some a truly holistically religious experience and i have that on hold so i gotta add leslie jones right behind that right uh uh maria bamford's memoir is very different it's called i'll join your cult (laughs) my favorite menopause book because menopause is what fresh hell is this by heather corinna oh the founder of scarletine yes they have a take on menopause that is more nourishing to my soul than any other menopause book i've read and i have read a lot well it does kind of go in hand in hand with your with your with your business yeah so, uh, Gender Magic by Ray McDaniel, R-A-E McDaniel. Um, it may or may not be out yet. I got to read an early copy. Um, and especially for people who either are transitioning or love someone who is transitioning or thinking about it, this is like from the inside out support for like finding who you are in a world that does not want you to. Mm-mm. Uh, and another book that's not out yet. It'll be out one week after my book. Um, if you're like, I want a book that's just about relationships, not necessarily about the sexy times, Love by Design by Sara Nasrzadeh is so good. 
Ma'am, where can people find you if you wish to be found? So now that I'm not in charge of my social media, they're much more active. Uh, (laughs) Ah, well done. (laughs) Uh, So emilynagoski.com is the website. Uh, You can get the books anywhere books are sold. As you know, there is not one better way from the author's point of view to get a book. If you can get it from your local bookshop, great. If you want to get it on Amazon or Target, do you. It's exciting that my sex book is being sold at Target. It's extremely exciting that your sex book is going to be at Target. Target thrilling. Hell yeah. Um, I am going on book tour. Book so I will tour. be in physical places, including both ripped bodice locations. Mazel tov. I'm so excited for your new book. Congratulations. You did the thing. I yeah. did the thing. You did I'm the never thing. doing it again. I'm definitely going to write another book. It's going to be short. I'm going to write the shortest book. I'm going to write a board book about sex. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode and the conclusion of our 600th episode. I'm very excited about that. Thank you to Emily Nagoski for being so honest and vulnerable and always being a wonderful guest to talk to. I want to thank Mikhail from Pixabay for the nifty drum roll sound that I found. Thank you, Mikhail. I will have all of the books that we mentioned in the show notes, along with links to some of the resources that Emily mentioned. And you can find that at smartbitchestrashybooks.com under episode 600 or in the show notes to the file that you are listening to right now. As always, I end with a terrible joke. And this terrible joke is from, I want to say Cillin. Cillin, if I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. What do you call a food fight that breaks out at a Golden Corral restaurant. Give up? What do you call a food fight that breaks out at the Golden Corral? All you can yeet. (laughs) If you're not familiar, Golden Corral is an all-you-can-eat American buffet restaurant. There used to be so many when I was younger. Where I lived in Western Pennsylvania, there was Pappin's and the Ground Round, but the biggest buffet where I lived was Haas's. So if you've ever had the all-you-can-eat restaurant experience, do not get in a food fight. You do not wish to all-you-can-eat. Eat. <laughs> On behalf of everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcasting Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts. And thank you for 600 episodes. <laughs> <laughs>